In the summer of 2020, the governor of the state of California banned every single church in the state from singing praises or chanting. Shortly thereafter, he also banned thousands of churches from gathering in person. One might could make the case that in a pandemic, that's justifiable, but at the same time, the governor allowed many other organizations to continue to meet openly, including Hollywood studios, strip clubs, and even encouraged massive protests of tens of thousands of people who violated every single order that he had placed upon churches. When a Texas nonprofit organization called Christians Engaged filed for 501c3 status in 2019, it took the IRS 18 months even to respond. When they did, the IRS said, and I quote, that Bible teachings disqualify Christians Engage from 501c3 status. In the summer of 2018, the University of Iowa kicked InterVarsity Christian Fellowship off its campus after 25 years of ministry because InterVarsity expected its leaders to maintain its statement of faith. Meanwhile, literally scores of other organizations were allowed to stay on campus and require their leaders to maintain their faith. On August the 7th of this year, dozens of black-clad Antifa militants carrying shields and weapons descended on an outdoor worship service in Portland, Oregon. They hurled flash bombs, pepper sprayed the Christians and their children, and trashed much of the church's equipment in the water. In a video recording of the event, one Antifa member can be heard shouting to the Christians, where is your God now? In Canada this year, at least 56 churches have been vandalized or set aflame evidently for political reasons. The Canadian government has been slow to respond, but the executive director of the oldest civil rights organization in Canada tweeted a link to an article justifying the arsons and saying, and I quote, burn it all down. In August of 2019, the Federal Office of Civil Rights of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services found that the University of Vermont Medical Center had violated the law by forcing a nurse to participate in an abortion procedure against her religious convictions. And several years ago, when sociologist George Yancey conducted a survey of approximately 4,000 individuals to ask their opinion about Christians, most of the individuals were upscale, uh, wealthy, and well-educated individuals. The response he got was shocking. There was a vitriol, almost immeasurable, almost pathological. 80% said they would not hire a Christian. And comments were made such as these. Churches should be designated as nuclear test zones. Here's one. Kill them all and let God sort them out. The only good Christian is a dead Christian. And then there's this one. And by the way, these are from well-educated, upscale Americans. Imagine them saying that about any other group in America. And then there's this one. So many Christians and so few lions. It's just become pretty obvious that the vacation we've had in North America as Christians from harassment and hostility and opposition 
has come to an end. And that we now find ourselves where many other groups have found themselves, not only in the world, but here in the U.S. as well, facing hostility and open opposition. It actually shouldn't surprise us. If you were to look for a surprise in this, the real surprise would be that we managed to go so many decades without it. Because Jesus actually promises this. If the world hates you, he says, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So persecution has been the experience of the Christian faith all the way back to the original opposition the Pharisees expressed against Jesus. And around the world, it's been common for years. Open Doors International published every year a list of incidents and stats on Christian persecution. Here are a few from a couple years ago. Eight Christians are martyred every single day because of their Christian faith. Approximately 215 million Christians, that's one in every 12, faces high levels of persecution in dozens of countries today around the world. Every month, 255 Christians are martyred. By the way, you don't hear this in the media because the media seem uninterested in what's actually going on. Every month, 104 Christians are abducted. Every month, 180 Christian women have cleaned this up a little bit. I've cleaned this up, okay? Are sexually assaulted or forced into marriage. Every month, 66 churches are besieged. Every month, 160 Christians are detained without trial or imprisoned. In 2018 alone, 3,066 Christians were murdered, 1,252 were kidnapped. I've cleaned this up. 1,020 were sexually abused. 793 churches were attacked. What in the world is going on? We have not faced that as Christians in the U.S. until very recently. And what it means is that we might have to start rethinking what it looks like to be a Christian in a culture that no longer flows in the direction of Christianity, but now seems to begin to be flowing against us. I do want to say persecution of minorities is not new. It appears to be one of the great stains on all of humanity. I remind you that it was Protestant evangelical Christians who persecuted Mormons in the late 19th century and early 20th century. That many were involved in the harassment of women for centuries. And I don't think I need to say this, but I will. But when you see the theft against, the murder, the total lack of justice, the enslavement of black Americans simply because of their race, it was so often done by members of Baptist churches, churches of Christ, Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches. Persecution is an ugly part of our history as well. But until recently, very few of us have expressed hosti- or have experienced hostility because we are Christian. Hostility we all face in one way or the other, but not because of our Christian positions. That appears to be changing. And what it might mean for many of us is that we have to rethink how to be faithful in an age where it's becoming increasingly difficult. Here are some areas where I think Christianity and secularism, which is what I'm going to call the rising opposition, are largely incompatible. There are more areas, but... Christianity and secularism have very different views of human nature. We Christians believe that we're made in the image of God. Therefore, our all life is sacred to the Christian, but it is stained by sin. Secularism 
doesn't have a God for us to be made in his image. And so for secularism, all there is is human expression. We Christians believe that ethics are to be judged by loving God first and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Ethics and secularism boil down to simple pleasure. Find whatever pleasure you can get out of life, have everybody else fund it or underwrite it or approve of it, and then die. We Christians believe that there is such a thing as truth and justice. In fact, we believe that truth exists whether you know it exists or not, and truth is true whether you believe it's true or not. Secularism generally subjects truth to power, preferring the latter over the former. And then there are, are these areas that tend to circulate around, of all things, this formerly very private thing called sex. Christians have a high view of religious freedom, which is you have the God-given right freely to exercise your religion, both privately and publicly, a right that our First Amendment has enshrined but didn't give to us. We already had it. We Christians have always believed. The Christian church has always stood for the sanctity of all human life. That's been a Christian position all the way back to the days that Christians would scour the woods looking for abandoned babies and bring them home and raise them because we believe everybody is in the image of God, born or unborn. Secularists don't believe that, generally speaking. We Christians have a very strong view of a biblical notion of family, one man, one woman in a united relationship called marriage for life. Secularism is willing to play games with marriage and define essentially whatever is the most trendy thing as marriage. And then, as I said, to me, the oddest one, because sex has been for so many generations such a private thing, it appears that the greatest conflict right now is over what we call soji Issues. I want to tell you what soji is because we'll be using the term quite a bit over the next several weeks. Soji is, is uh, if you don't know this, I'll tell you. Soji is an abbreviation for sexual orientation, gender identity issues. These actually seem to be sort of the greatest source of conflict right now between Christians and non-Christians. Things like same-sex activity or gender transitioning. And in each of these cases, we Christians are finding ourselves, in many cases at least, caught off guard. Not prepared for the conflict that we face at work, in social media, in our schools, with our governments, with our friends, out in the public marketplace. Suddenly, what could have been presumed for a number of years, that is, you could express rather openly a Christian position without experiencing any kind of pushback, those days appear to be gone. What I want to do is spend the next eight weeks, but not just the next eight weeks. I want to spend as long as it takes, and I'm assuming it's going to take years, to help us as Christians rethink what it means to be Christian in a world that appears to be increasingly hostile towards our faith because of our faith. So think of this as the opening salvo of an eight-week, opening salvo, I should say, of a conversation that will probably go for years, eight weeks. During the eight weeks, I want to invite us to think through what does it look like for a Christian to remain gracious, loving, joyful, but also firm, unbending, and uncompromising to the world. What does that look like? Many of us have not had to answer that question, but I think we will now. I use this text just to kick off the conversation. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13, Paul says, Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, and be strong. 
I want to tell you there are two, well, we're doing this in the sermons, we're doing it in small groups, we're doing the Bible classes, we'll be doing it in various other venues. We have several really cool things that we want to share with you as we go through this uh, next eight weeks. But I do want to tell you there are two particular subjects I want to dig really deeply in, and sermons just aren't the right place to do it. The first one has to do with SOGI issues, sexual orientation, gender identity issues. So what I want to do is have a pullout session on Monday night, September 27. We'll share more information, but I'd like for you to go on and mark that down. We're going to spend some time really talking about what the Bible has to say and how Christians can stand faithful on issues that relate to sexual identity, uh, excuse me, sexual orientation and gender identity. And then on October 18th, I want us to talk about how do we navigate a culture remaining faithful to ourselves but also loving to the culture. So these are two dates I'd like to have you write down. And then I want to talk this morning about one simple principle that actually won't take that long. One simple principle. And that is choose Jesus and don't back down. But before we get there, I want to say something. I started working on this sermon you know, there's a lot of ways I started working on this sermon when I was about 23 years old. I mean that literally, but I've been working on this sermon since January. Y'all may have heard me say, you know, I've been working on a project. You remember early in this year, I was talking about I've been working on a project. This is it. And I just keep coming back to two possible ways of misunderstanding what I'm up to. And so I'm going to address them before I start. Let me say this. Politics matter, and the culture wars are fought for good reasons. I just want to make sure we underscore this. I think it's disingenuous for preachers to say politics don't matter. Everybody in this room knows politics matter. Politics often costs people their lives. It, it matters. Uh, every one of you knows it matters. So we're not going to pretend like politics don't matter in here. And we're also not going to pretend like, well, the culture wars is somebody else's worry. That's not our worry. It is our worry. Like we belong here. It matters. These things matter. We're not going to pretend like they don't matter. But I do want to say, because we are the people of God, I'm going to continually challenge you to rise above politics. I want to remind you that our ultimate battle is not against flesh and blood. It really isn't. Now, give me eight weeks to help you see this. But if at the end of the day, all we've done is argued politics, we have failed Jesus. Politics matter. But our battle is against the powers, the authorities, and the prince of this dark world. That's our battle. And that's, that's the battle we must engage. But to make sure you don't misunderstand me, I'm going to say something to the left and something to the right. Those of you who might be on the left, I just want to say the hostility that we Christians are facing, it is real. Don't deny that it's real. And a lot of it's coming from the left. And you're not... You're not helping us if you pretend like that's not happening. It is. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to support your Christian brothers. I'll give you some, a list in just a moment of just some of the things that are happening at North Boulevard. Support your brothers and sisters and don't sneer at us from some elite position as though, as though there's something wrong with people for not agreeing with what the latest positions of the left happen to be. Now, I want to say this to those of you on the right. Those of you on the right, I want to make sure you understand that not everything you dislike is a form of persecution. I just want to say that when Christians argue over things like the Second Amendment or wearing masks or not wearing masks, and we say that's a Christian thing, 
First of all, we invite the world to quit listening to us. Because you won't show me a verse in the Bible that says how many bullets a clip can have. There is not a Christian position on that. So don't act like it's a form of persecution. It's not. You just disagree. That's all it is. Just say we disagree. I'm fine if you disagree. Go out there and vote for whoever you want to vote for. What I'm talking about in this sermon series is not things you disagree with. I'm talking about things where you are actually being bullied because of your Christian principles, not because of your political principles. We all disagree politically. I'm talking about areas where Christians are actually being harassed, bullied, censored, and in some cases penalized for Christian positions. And if we can keep that distinction in our minds, it will help us talk the way Jesus talks. Because I remind you, when Jesus was doing his ministry for those three years, one of the most evil, vile, vulgar, despicable humans ever to live was reigning the Mediterranean world, Tiberius Caesar. If I told you even half of what that man did, you'd throw me out for being so bad. And Jesus never even mentioned him. The only time Jesus ever mentioned him was when someone said, do we give this, this penny, the King James says, this denarius, do we give it to uh, Caesar or not? And what did Jesus say? <laughs> it's got his picture on it, give it to him. And give God what belongs to God. So that's the orientation we're going to take in this series. And I'm going to start by saying this, here and now, once and for all, if you're going to stand firm in a culture that is hostile towards you as so many cultures have been towards the Christian faith, as Marxist cultures have been towards the Christian faith throughout the 20th century. More Christians died under Marxist regimes than in all other regimes put together throughout all of history. In Islamic states, Christians today, most of the states that are hostile towards Christianity today are Islamic states. And some of the hostility is severe. If we're going to stand in a secular state it appears that America is becoming increasingly secular. We're becoming minorities. The very first thing you have to do, you know what it is? You got to take a stand. Like you need to decide once and for all, I follow Jesus. That question is now closed. There is never going to be a question again in my life who I follow. In fact, when I was baptized, I made the decision, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm not going to back down from that. So now, the only question is, how am I going to do it? There are no more weather questions in my life. No more weather or not questions. I'm done with that. When I was baptized on August 27th of 1969, I made my decision. I'm following Jesus Christ, come what may, and I'm not going to back down. And you need to make that decision because there may be difficult times coming your way. And this, you do not want to equivocate when the difficult decision gets to you. You need your commitment resolved here and now once and for all. I just want to share with you some of the things that have been shared with me over the last year or so, I'm going to tell you up front, I'm jumbling some of the information around because I don't want you to identify who shares this or that with me. So these are true to the spirit of what's been shared with me. Let me, let me just tell you a few things that we've been experiencing at this congregation and at some other congregations with whom I've interacted. Someone has said, my HR department is pushing me to support next year's pride parade in June and has told me, quote, you will support it, close quote. You tell me what's this guy supposed to do? This is one of our brothers. Here's one. I work for a, for a pharmaceutical company for pharmacists. I have been told that I have to fill misoprostol 
prescriptions. These are abortion pills that terminate a pregnancy. I'll lose my job if I don't. These are real Christians. This is really happening right now among your brothers and sisters. So what do we do? Do they fill the prescriptions or do they quit? And in some states, if you're going to work in the state, you have to do it or you lose your license. I have someone told me their church's liability insurance company has said, we're probably going to have to pull your insurance because your biblical views on gender are going to get you sued. So the church is asking, do we soften our sermons or lose our liability? My employer has just told me that I must support the Equality Act or be fired. The Equality Act has passed the House of Representatives. The president has said he will sign it. The Equality Act, I'll let you study it. Here's what I'm concerned about. It expressly, expressly in writing says that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act cannot protect Christians from the implications of this bill. So, I have to sign it or get fired. Here's one. I'm one of the valedictorians in my high school class, and my administration has said to me that I can talk about anything I want to in the valedictorian speech except Jesus. We have a church not far from here. It was recently booted off YouTube. YouTube never told them why. Their question is, what are we preaching that gets us thrown off social media? My fourth grader, someone told me, came home with a homework assignment of writing a celebration card for a girl in her class who's transitioning to a boy. This is a work assignment I have to do or my child will get an F. My literature professor introduced himself as gay and said he's married to a gay man and then said to the class, any of you who doesn't like this can leave my class. The American Psychological Association's ethical guidelines, a counselor told me, prevents me from teaching what the Bible says about sex and gender on pain of losing my license. But I am a Christian counselor who works for a church. What do I do? My son went to a Church of Christ university. It says Church of Christ on it. Where he was taught that it's okay to be gay. He came home and told me that I will either accept it or I will lose him as my son. When I tried to, nav- when I tried to navigate this, my own family, all of whom are members of my church, told me that I was a bigot if I didn't accept what my son said. I just want you to see these are real issues. And many of us are facing these issues. And if you're not facing these issues, odds are you soon will. And so, if we were to catalog them, we might say the hostility headed our way is coming in the forms of disinformation or propaganda, intimidation, and shaming, discrimination, and silencing, and in some cases, coercion or even penalties. And so, the first step, the first solution, the absolute first thing you must do is if you follow Jesus, you must make your mind up here and now and once and for all, I'm going to do what Jesus says, we must obey God rather than men. I have made my mind up and I'm not going to back down. That's where it starts. And I just want to remind you, you actually have already made that oath. Let me give you a few ways that you stand up for Jesus. The first one is to recognize that to be a Christian is to stand firm. Here's how Jesus put it in Luke chapter 9. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up a cross and follow me. And then Jesus reminds you, if you think you're saving your life by compromising Jesus' words, you're not saving anything. 
you're losing your life. I want to say this with our kids even. I've said this before, and I have Jonathan's permission to share parts of his story, all of his story. He doesn't care. But when the kids, when John turned to, I don't know when it was, 12, 13, something like that, becoming a teenager, I set my kids down and I said, but I'm, I'm not even sure if this is right. And y'all forgive me if it sounds like I'm calling attention to myself. I don't mean to. I just want to tell you what happened. I said to my kids early on, I said, hey, guys, please don't ever make me pick between you and Jesus. Because if you do, I'm going to pick Jesus. I said that to my kids several times. And you could see the shock, especially on Jonathan's face, sweet little Rachel's face too. But I just said, don't make me pick. Because when I was baptized, I already picked. Nothing's going to come between me and Jesus. That's what I said. Sometime back, Julie and well, the whole family was sitting around, and she said something to the kids about, do you all remember Dad saying that? And they both said, oh, yeah, we remember. And I said to Jonathan, I said, John, how did it make you feel when you heard me say that? How, how do you think it would make you feel? You know what he said? He said, I was proud of my dad, and I wanted to be just like him. Because he wanted to know that somebody around him stood for something. And I want you to know the whole world is watching us. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. If the world looks at us and we're not standing for anything, the world has no hope. We don't want to be hard. We don't want to be heartless. We're not ungracious people. We're not unjoyful people. But we need to be people who understand we have already died. We've already denied ourselves. And we win our life when we lose our life for the sake of Jesus. Or put this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when you were baptized, you died. We're people who talk a lot about baptism, and we should. It's in the Bible over a hundred times. But it's not just a doctrine, it's a way of life. When you were baptized, the old guy died. He's dead now. And because he's dead, you've got nothing left to lose. We went to India some years back. Renee and David, you remember this? And it was, you think it's hot in Middle Tennessee? There's nothing like India hot. And we knew there wouldn't be air conditioning. It'd be, you know, I sweat. Y'all seen me. I just sweat. I, I sweat if I'm not doing anything. I'm just always sweating. Probably some condition. Who knows? So I decided before we went to India, I just said, okay, I'm just dead already. I'm just going to be dead when I get there. And that way I won't expect any air conditioner. I just, I'm, going to, I'm just going to be as miserable as I can. That way, if anything good happens, I'll, it'll be like a, a little delight. And one night we got air conditioning. And I'm telling you, you can't imagine what it's like when you've already decided you're dead and you get air conditioning. <laughs> By the way, to finish that story, the last night we stayed, we stayed in a big dorm room and everybody had air conditioning except my room. And I went to our leader and I said, dude, this ain't going to work. He said, you've been saying all week you've already died to pleasures. And I said, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> I was raised from the dead. Get me in a room with an air conditioner. But what I'm arguing is when we were baptized, you've already said, I, that's it. I'm following Jesus. When a difficult situation occurs, I'm going to pick Jesus. Every time, that's not open for debate. I would rather pick Jesus and lose my job. I'd rather pick Jesus and lose my family. I'd rather pick Jesus and lose my church. If you're going to a church and they're compromising, you've got, got a pastor or minister who gets up and says, well, the Apostle Paul says this, but we know the Apostle Paul's wrong. I'd rather have Paul than that pastor. I'd rather have Paul than that church. I'm just saying you already picked Jesus. Now, my second thing, prepare for the hostility that is headed your way. Peter says this, don't be surprised that you're suffering. Christians all over the world suffer. The big surprise for us is that we went so long without suffering as Christians. 
We really did have a vacation from suffering. It's over. Now the world is looking at us. And by the way, I want to say the opposition that we feel in America is bad for America, but it's really good for Christians because a little pushback develops muscle. Some of us are flabby and we need some spiritual muscle. As Matthew says in chapter 10, or Jesus says in Matthew 10, he says, look, it's gonna, it may well get to the day. This is already happening in our churches. We're brothers turning against brother, father against children, children against parents. You know how it's happening? We already have people who are coming out, uh, children who are in their late teens, sometimes middle teens, adult children who have said, this is my lifestyle. And they've said to their parents, if you don't accept it, if you don't accept my boyfriend, you don't get me. Jesus told us it's coming. Don't be surprised when it comes. There's no surprise here. Instead, what we do instead of being surprised is we count the cost and pay the price up front. Like you need to decide right now, is it worth following Jesus? Is losing every, remember we used to talk about losing everything for Jesus. Back when it was theory, it was worth it. Is it worth it when it really happens? Are you okay if it really happens? Jim, I can't help but pick on you, Jim Bryant. 25 years ago, you and I had a conversation about growing up poor. You were poorer than I was, but we were kind of poor. Jim retired from banking, had a successful career at banking. Hope you don't mind me quoting you on this. It's a good quote. You won't mind it. And I remember you told me one time, this is like one of the sweetest things I ever heard. You said, you know, growing up that way, the one thing I can say is I'm not ever afraid of doing the right thing and going back to where I grew up. That is, if I lose everything, I already know how to live that way. That's what you're saying. I already know how to live that way, and I'm okay with it. I'm just saying, are you okay if it costs you everything to follow Jesus? Because he said it might. Like, we need to go on and make our minds up early on. I've already counted the cost. Jesus says, if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not fit for me. Anyone who loves their father and mother more than they love me is not fit for me. And then third, fourth, I should say, don't compromise. Now, let me say this, on October, the whatever that date is, I told you, on that date, when we do the Monday night pullout, I want to help you see that there are ways to be subversive. There are ways to be subversive. Jesus says, be as wise as a snake, as gentle as a dove. There are ways to be subversive. That is, you don't have to take on every fight. You don't have to run out in the street looking to become a martyr. Okay? We're going to talk about how to do that. But I do want to say this. When you start compromising, you have begun the process of giving up your faith. You just have. And when your kids see you compromise, you've begun the process of them losing their faith as well. If you're going to lose your kids, lose your kids because you stood firm on Jesus. Don't lose your kids because you compromised so much that they lost interest in Jesus. James says this, don't you know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy? of God? Or Peter puts it this way, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had. I just, you know what the greatest threat facing the church today is? The greatest threat is not atheism, it's not secularism, it's not, um, it's not politics. The greatest threat facing us today is that we will compromise, is that we'll assimilate with the world around us and lose the only light the world has. Like the world needs to be able to look at us and see a couple of things. They need to see a, a smile on our face. And we're not afraid. 
If this sermon is making you afraid, stick with us. I'm going to help you get over that. This is not something to be afraid of. Goodness gracious, we got the Lord God Almighty on our side. This is something to be joyful about. Like we, we, need to, we need that Shadonke Johnson smile. You know the Shadonke Johnson smile that we're used to? Shadonke Johnson's arrested. He's surrounded. There's a firing squad, an AK-47 to his head. And his, I don't know how they do this. His elbows are tied together behind the back of his head. And he looks at the uh, colonel, I think it was, major or colonel, in the Sierra Leone argument, uh, army. And he says to the guy, before he pulls the trigger, AK-47, he says, hey, just before you do that, I want you to know, after you pull the trigger, I'm going straight to heaven. You probably aren't. So before you pull the trigger, if you give me a minute, I'll tell you how to get there. That colonel is now a church planter. He's a Christian, a church planter. And when Shadanke says that to him, you know Shadanke, he's smiling from ear to ear. Unafraid. I'm just suggesting when we follow Jesus, we can rejoice in a victory that's already ours because listen to what Jesus says. In this world, you will have trouble. The one thing Jesus promises is that you're going to have trouble. You're going to be in trouble with everybody if you follow Jesus. You're going to have ups and you're going to have downs, but you're going to have reason to be insanely joyful because you know that Jesus has already overcome the world. Listen to these texts. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those. Paul says when he's struggling, he says, when I'm weak, that's when I'm strongest. Jesus says, no matter what you lose, when I come back, you're going to get a hundred times that much. Or as he puts in Matthew 28, after he says, go make disciples, go baptize, go teach people to obey, he says, and look, that's what the word behold means, or surely in this text, I'm going to be with you, even to the end of the ages. So brothers and sisters, this is a time for great courage, a time for great joy, a time for great resolve, a time for us to say, I take my stand with Jesus Christ. I'll put it the way I've put it before. I have drawn a line in the sand, I am standing with Jesus, and I'm not going to back down. And that's what we have to do to be faithful to him. In 1900, this text, what was it? Yeah, this text. In 1956, Martin Luther King moved to Montgomery, Alabama to help lead the emerging civil rights movement. When he got there to Montgomery, he got an anonymous phone call. We're not the only ones who've been persecuted, my friends. Someone said, if you stay in Montgomery, Alabama, we're going to blow your brains out and we're going to burn your house to the ground with your children in it. By the way, King had every reason to believe that they were serious. Worse things had happened in the American South. He wrote years later in his papers and his diary about what he wrestled with that night. He explains in his papers, writing to himself, that he was afraid. I mean, he was, he was really afraid. He was afraid for himself, but he was afraid for his children and for his family and for the movement he was leading. And he was aware of the fact that if others saw his fear, they would become disheartened and they would back down. So he told about one night when he began to pray, about this verse, the last sentence of the Gospel of Matthew, I'm with you always, 
and I'm going to quote from him. He said, it seemed at that moment, I'm quoting, I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for what is right. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And I will be with you even to the end of the world. He said, I heard the voice of Jesus saying, fight on. I won't ever leave you. I will never leave you alone. His house was burned to the ground. But he went on to lead one of the most righteous movements in the history of the world because he didn't back down. At the end of the book of Joshua, which is the book that follows Deuteronomy, Joshua has led the children of Israel across the Jordan. They've conquered much of the land of Israel. Joshua knows his death is approaching and he gives a final charge in the book of Joshua to the Israelites. This is a text you're all familiar with, most of you are. Remember what he says? He's gathered all the Israelites and he's trying to tell them, guys, you're going to be tempted to wander away. You're going to be tempted to compromise. Don't. Here's what he says. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. And here's the sentence that so many of us draw strength from. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, if the hostility that we're picking up on around us increases, your Joshua moment has arrived. Your Joshua moment's here where you need to make the decision. Are you standing for Jesus? That's a question. Are you willing to stand for Jesus even if it gets tough? And the answer is, if you say yes, here's what he says. The last chapter is already written. God wins, and those who stand with him forever stand invincible. So let's stand up, and I want you to ask yourself that question. Am I ready to stand with Jesus? And, um, and then let's live it out.